From the University of Wisconsin-Madison, this is Ask a Historian. I'm Emily Tran. Today on the show, how did undocumented immigrants come to dominate the workforce on U.S. dairy farms? Professor David McDonald talks to PhD candidate Dustin Cohan about how changes in the U.S. dairy industry that began in the 1970s led to an unprecedented reliance on undocumented immigrant laborers. In the past several years, national and local journalists have given increased attention to the role of undocumented laborers on dairy farms. In 2017, HuffPost centered Wisconsin farms in a feature with the headline, Undocumented Workers Are the Backbone of Dairies. Will Trump Change That? Earlier this year, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel declared, Wisconsin's dairy industry would collapse without the work of Latino immigrants, many of them undocumented. You can find links to both those articles in the show notes. Our question today is about the history behind these headlines. How did undocumented workers come to dominate the workforce on U.S. dairy farms, particularly in Wisconsin? This is one of the questions at the center of PhD candidate Dustin Cohen's dissertation research. Today, we're listening to Dustin's conversation with Professor David McDonald. I'm uh, David McDonald. I'm a uh, specialist in the history of Imperial Russia and uh, more recently in uh, sport and popular culture. And uh, I'm uh, just finishing my 32nd year on faculty at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So I'm Dustin Cohan, and I am a a history PhD student researching immigration and labor history in the 20th century. And I am a fifth-year graduate student at uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison. Stay with us as Dustin explains how agricultural transformation in America's dairyland came to be and how it shaped the lives and work of Wisconsin dairy farmers, their undocumented workers, and the workers' communities of origin in Veracruz, Mexico. All right, Dustin, uh, we've had this question regarding the the presence or the appearance of uh, undocumented immigrant labor in the upper Midwest and specifically in Wisconsin and specifically in the dairy industry in which the number has grown quite significantly over the last several decades. What can you tell us about the, uh, about the, how this problem relates to your dissertation, your, your research? The dissertation really looks at the ways in which uh, the dairy industry has changed. Mm-hmm. I sort of recognize that there was a way to uh, map out the the migration or the the cycles of migration from Mexico to Wisconsin with the changes that were happening in the dairy industry, and really those changes were about the growing need for hired labor on dairy farms as they became larger businesses, and uh, the Mexican migration that had been happening um, sort of filled that void in the mid 1990s and through to today. Sure, sure. No, that, that's really interesting because uh, from this outsider's perspective, uh, the research problem seems to address something that would impress most lay people like me as almost a hiatal gap between two different types of uh, historical process. One would be the long history of uh, cross-border migration uh, uh, from Mexico into the United States. Uh, but I, I'd always associate that with, say, California and the, and the southern border states and, and not really the upper Midwest. On the other hand, there's a long history, at least I grew up in a grain growing part of Canada, and I know from on both sides of the border, there is a long tradition of migrant labor that helps with harvesting or helps with planting. And they sort of migrate across both sides of the border of 
for most of the 20th century in seasonal cycles, depending which crops are growing where. But in Wisconsin, this is specifically dairy industry that you're interested in. What changed in the dairy industry that creates this, uh, this new destination for uh, Mexican oat migrants? Well, I would start off by saying, you know, it's, it's, it's a similar case um, to the one you described in Canada, where there is a migrant stream or cycle. Yeah. And um, so Wisconsin being a place where, you know, there's a lot of farming, a variety, a diversity of farming, migrants have been coming to the state since at least the 1930s to do seasonal labor. Yeah. So in a similar way, moving from, you know, place to place, state to state, depending on the season, the harvest season and when work was needed. And so there's sort of this tradition of a migrant stream largely in the Midwest, coming from parts of South Texas sure. and Mexico. Now, the dairy industry had always been a more small, family-based uh, labor operation, I guess I could call it. People didn't have many cows on their farms. Yeah. Um, it might have been you know, a range from 40 to 50 cows, and that did not require farmers to hire additional laborers. But there came a point in the 1970s where several things started to happen. There's technology that really influences the efficiency of mm. the industry. So dairy science helping produce larger cows that are then producing greater volumes of milk. Then in the 1980s, there are sort of technological um, computerized systems advances in how farmers feed their animals, how they arrange them, organize them. Yep. And then by the 1990s, we see this push for growth, which is also in, sort of encouraged by the state government of Wisconsin for dairy farms to grow, partially because the price of milk had been going down sure. pretty much since the 1970s. And the government, while it used to have a price support system for dairy farmers, that system sort of uh, evaporated in the 1980s and early 90s. And so Farmers had the choice. We could either grow the size of our farm yeah. to take advantage of the larger numbers, create some economies of scale on our farm, um, or we try to go into a niche market, keep a smaller farm, but increase the quality and hopefully be able to sell at a larger price. But there wasn't much in-between space. There's not a lot of leeway. You either had to try to specialize or you had to try to grow. Otherwise, people were going bankrupt, people were being forced to sell. So as people are growing, as farms are growing in size, they have a real need for hired labor, sure. and they don't have a ready labor pool uh, yeah. because they had never had a need for workers in that industry to this extent. Uh -huh. And so what happens is, you know, we have migrants from Mexico that are in the Midwest already, working in other industries, maybe even adjacent industries like more of your standard crop agriculture. Yeah, yeah. And they are in some ways the right place at the right time, but also they very quickly take to that business. And what we find out is laborers are recruiting themselves, <laughs> that dairy farm owners are not really recruiters and they don't really know a lot about recruiting because of the the sort of background of the family basis sure. for the business sure. so it leaves open this avenue for people who have an, a uh, a knowledge of people in need of jobs and a knowledge of jobs 
that are needing to be filled. Huh. Um, and so it's sort of a um, an informal familial or kinship network that yep. really blossoms in Wisconsin. Well, yeah, that's one of the images I got from my own mind from the background materials you uh, you were kind enough to share is that this whole period sees the formation of actually uh, complementary networks, I would imagine, between uh, uh, the growth of uh, knowledge and connections on the part of the farmers, but also among uh, the migrant uh, labor force itself, because they seem to be pretty regionally concentrated in terms of their uh, homes in Mexico. Is that Would that be right? or? Uh... Yeah, that is right. So initially, when farms start really having a strong need for hired labor, because of some contingent sort of historical process with the area of Veracruz, Mexico. Mm -hmm. There were a large number of Veracruzanos that were in the Midwest already working. And so, you know, that's partially a history of that region of Mexico yeah. and the ways in which economic and political changes in Mexico, but also in North America, sort of create a economic need decreasing the economic opportunities for Mexicans in Mexico. Sure. There's a lot of issues with the Mexican peso being devalued and simply economic opportunities not being available. Yep. And what happens really is that because there's not a institutionalized or standardized recruiting model, yeah. the Veracruzanos that are there are able to start recruiting their own family and friends to fill those jobs. Sure, sure, sure. Well, no, that makes sense. And of course, I was thinking that, and the, the other big change outside of the structural transformation in the dairy industry is the, the structure of the uh, of the legal regime for uh, immigration or for crossing that border, especially in search of work. And how has that changed? I would think up until the 1950s, it was pretty unproblematic and certainly was for uh, crossing from the nor across the northern border. When do these things begin to change? Because that seems to be a very important condition that uh, your farmers and your workers are dealing with. Right. Yes. Certainly, the border is increasingly, since the early part of the 20th century, has been becoming increasingly militarized. The border patrol that's on there is getting larger. But I would say the point at history that I am sort of focused on is the 1986 sure. Immigration Reform and Control yeah. Act. I remember it well, yeah. Yeah, so that's that's a pretty big deal. It has two parts that function. There's the amnesty program for undocumented immigrants that had already been in the country, and then it also increased the budget for the Border Patrol and ways of policing undocumented immigration. Um, so from that 1986 point forward, uh, scholars are pretty consistent in saying the border becomes more and more dangerous, more and mm -hmm. more difficult to cross. Yep. The areas that are available for crossing are smaller, and the terrain in those areas is a lot more difficult to get across. Mountains, yeah. deserts, those types of things. And so the process has certainly become more difficult and more dangerous. But at the same time, when you have these networks of family and friends, you know, kinship relations that are building this network sure. that have contacts on the border, transportation networks from the border to different parts of the country. We're starting to see that there's knowledge that's being produced from this group of migrants, and they're sharing that knowledge with the people who are those next generations of, of migrants that are coming. And so partially the border does deter 
a lot of people, but at the same time, there are systems that are being created by those communities of migrants to make that process safer, make it maybe simpler. Yeah. And there's a lot of buy-in from the community of people that live in this part of, of Veracruz, Mexico, to help each other to create a better community for themselves in Veracruz. There's certainly reason to be fearful of the situation, but at the same time, they're creating ways of, of getting across. Yeah, and that, that also speaks to the, uh, the the push force for out-migration to begin with, is the, the conditions are sufficiently uh, marginal in a very cruise area that sort of lowers the threshold represented by the increasing difficulty of crossing. Yeah, absolutely. And what I would usually say is that they're socially and economically vulnerable enough that these types of dangers are not stopping them. Yeah, yeah. Now, again, on the other side of this, uh, uh, this relationship, you have this uh, community of... Uh, uh, increasingly stretched uh, dairy farmers. This is not a community you usually associate with uh, with clandestine activity, but uh, there's a mutual complicity, uh, and usually the conversation focuses on the uh, on the laborers for reasons we'll come back to in a bit. But how do these dairy farmers explain the fact that they're abetting the breaking of a law that they probably philosophically supported when it was uh, first introduced? Yeah, it's a it's a good question, and I would say that most farmers do not have a good answer for it. Usually, when you talk to dairy farmers in, in the state of Wisconsin, you're right. They do have political views that might be more in favor of immigration restriction, and yet they have a body of, of laborers that they're increasingly reliant upon uh, that don't have that uh, legal status that you know, is sort of the, the paramount need um, for people to, to feel safe and to feel protected by, yeah. by law. So you're seeing more and more dairy farmers come out and support their immigrant workers and and say that there is a need to find ways to legalize these workers. There's got to be a way to create a program where we can have visas for people doing year-round labor uh-huh. that doesn't, you know, sort of force us to to break the law in this way. The most common visa for workers is the temporary H2A visa. Yeah. And that program does not work for dairy because the work is year-round. It's not seasonal. So there is really a strong need for a new type of program, a new type of visa that can support these year-round enterprises. And, you know, it's still a very sensitive and difficult topic to broach with people. They don't want to talk about it all the time. And certainly I've had a lot of difficulty just getting through to speak to people because as soon as they find out what your work is, they're fearful that, you know, you might be trying to either undermine them or expose something. Yeah. And so it's very difficult to gain the trust of the people to have that first response but for those who I have spoken to and, and who have shared with me, yeah, um, they are more so than ever before proponents of immigration reform that mm-hmm. would create a way for them to have visas to provide to year-round workers. Huh, interesting. Now, 
I, I do know that uh, uh, when I first came into the country, even when I first got on faculty at University of Wisconsin-Madison, under the free trade agreement before the, the original one between Canada and the States, not uh, the NAFTA, the expansion to Mexico, but uh, there was a special visa just called a free trade visa that if you were invited to come in and you proved you were qualified to do this, uh, you could work uh, year-round. Well, I could hold my position, right, until I got my uh, green card. Was there any effort to... Uh, create something similar vis-a-vis Mexico when uh, FTA becomes NAFTA? There's a couple of different types of visas or different programs that got initiated with NAFTA that enabled sort of, I guess what you call like a temporary year-round visa maybe. Um, It's not seasonal, but there's, there's, so there's two different types of visas that come to mind. There's a TN. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one. J1. Yeah. So, what I see on dairy farms is that those visas are most often used to recruit educated college graduates who, you know, either worked as veterinarians or some type of animal science. And those people are the ones who use those visas. Um, and so some of the stipulation is you have to be college educated or there has to be a, a guarantee of employment and the employer has to do an, a good amount of paperwork, which is not always something you know that can be done or that people are willing to do for farming. Sure. Um, and so you know there there are these programs, and I I have met a handful of people who you know either have a bachelor's from a public university in Mexico, mm-hmm. um, and they want to become veterinarians in Mexico, and so they're they're almost on an, what seems to be an exchange program where they come to the U.S. They're here for between twelve and fifteen months, and you know they're working on the dairy farms with the expectation that they're going to be doing work regarding you know insemination or yeah. dairy science or something of a little bit higher caliber. Sure. And what we find is that they're not always doing that. Yeah. That sometimes they're the ones who are doing the most basic um, sort of low wage labor. It kind of, it, it varies depending on the dairy farm and the dairy farmer yeah. and how they choose to use their workers. So yeah, I, I see that there are things that NAFTA created, but largely those tools are ineffective for the population coming from places like Veracruz or regions that are more impoverished. People don't have the same level of education. Uh, It just doesn't work. Yeah. No, no, I I get your point entirely. And yet something you raised earlier that uh, the declining presence or density of the American-based labor market for this, why aren't Americans doing this work? That is a great question, and it's certainly one that dairy farmers asked for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at Wisconsin-based or even you know Minnesota-based regional newspapers from the late '80s or the early 1990s, sure. you'll see any number of ads, you know, help wanted ads for dairy farms. They're all over the place. They're littered across these newspapers from that that period. And when you talk to dairy farmers, they will tell you, yeah, you know, in 1994, 95, even earlier, I was trying, you know, my hardest to recruit local American-born citizens, usually sort of white rural people, and largely they were unreliable or completely uninterested in doing that type of labor for that amount of money. And so part of it is there's a rural out-migration that's happening. Sure. There's 
a decreasing population in the rural counties of Wisconsin. Yes. Uh, that's something that's been going on for a while now, but the population of workers to begin with is decreasing. Mm-hmm. In the past, dairy farmers, maybe they needed a, a hired hand to work a few months and they would have hired a local high school kid or somebody who might've just been down on their luck or sure. just didn't have a job. And those were the types of people that filled those temporary needs. But that is not a reliable workforce for year-round labor. And repeatedly, I would hear that dairy farmers would hire somebody maybe who was born locally. They might have lasted a week. Yeah, yeah. And then decided that they didn't want to do it. Or they just were completely disinterested in the type of work um, and just thought they needed a job. But once they found out how difficult it is to do dairy farming, they had nothing, they didn't want to have anything to do with it. Yeah. Really, the money is too little yeah. for American-born citizens who have you know, at least a high school diploma to think that working on a dairy farm at a minimum wage is enough yes. to, to yeah. create a, a life. That's sort of the common refrain that I hear is, you know, Americans aren't willing to do this work. It's very difficult work. It's dirty. It's smelly. You bring that home with you every day. Yeah. And it's a big commitment. These are not easy tasks that you're being asked to do. Why don't you talk about the work they do? What's involved in um, sporting a, a dairy herd year round? Sure. Yeah. You know, you have, let's say a thousand cows, they're they're ranging between, you know, 1300 and 2000 pounds. And your job is to basically maneuver around them, um, clean up after them, feed them. And it's no easy task just because it's Wisconsin and a a majority of the year it's cold outside. You're outside with the animals. That in and of itself is difficult. It's just really long hours heavy lifting, you know, you're not just milking cows, you're also helping move feed around. Um, It's a farm. Usually there's other things that are going on in that farm. It's not just milking cows. Um, And so there's all sorts of tasks uh, with large pieces of equipment and machinery that create danger, whether it's just minor danger or whether it's more severe. Every day, you know, you you know you're going in there at, at risk of something. And so there are people that are in there doing more scientific tasks, I guess you could say, people that are yep. more involved in the insemination process or have more to do with the sort of feeding of calves or, or things like that. But the vast majority are milking cows, rotating through, working 10 to 12 hour shifts, and on average working about 60 hours a week. Most people work six days a week. Yeah. In exchange for what? What would the average pay be? And what sort of uh, benefits? Uh, like you're working in the proximity of these big animals and there's a lot of moving parts in a modern dairy farm. Uh, what if you get hurt? What if you get ill? What sorts of protections do you have there? Well, I think it largely depends on the people that you work for. Okay. Um, as undocumented immigrants, they certainly have less access to the types of healthcare services that a citizen would have. Part of that is because some farms don't offer health insurance. Sure. Some do. Um, I think increasingly, especially you know today, more and more are. Okay. But as this transition happened in the 1990s and dairy farmers were having to become managers of people mm-hmm. rather than managers of cows, they had to learn this. Yeah, how bad. And there's very tight margins in this industry. So people have to really be motivated to want to 
give out more money, produce, you know, more benefits for their employees because they have to be able to afford to do that. Uh So there's a lot of complications just initially. And so there's clinics or a couple of clinics in this state and uh, in Minnesota that really are geared towards that population. Uh But that type of care is certainly not the best that's available. Yep. There's also a great fear on the part of dairy workers that they should do their best to not get sick. Yes. And so even if they are slightly injured or slightly ill, more than not, they're going to still go to work. That's that's another aspect of this, that there's a language barrier that exists on a lot of farms, and that language barrier creates fear. Yes. Um, fear of speaking up, fear of voicing concerns. I was visiting uh, a couple of dairy farms in the northwestern part of the state, mm-hmm. and I met a worker who had a pneumonia, and he's working. Mm-hmm. Certainly, that's not something that I think most industries would promote, and it's not that I think the dairy farmers are necessarily promoting it. It's yeah. that there are these vulnerabilities that exist when not addressed or sort of not proactively addressed, it creates these inequalities. Mm -hmm. And certainly I've seen evidence of people who have worked in the industry for over 20 years, and you can see the wear and tear on their hands, on their posture. Oh, yeah. And so there's sort of those maybe long-term effects, and, and they will tell you, you know, they have back problems or they have, you know, a leg problem that they never addressed either because they were not able to afford a proper medical service, the clinic was only Uh able to provide a certain amount of help, and or they were fearful of trying to find better or more effective help. So that's that's something that I think has been consistent uh, since this transition happened. Well, I can imagine. And I I also imagine you alluded to it earlier that different operations treat their employees differently, which uh, I was wondering about the life of the uh, the Mexican community in these areas. They must have a grapevine about uh, who's good to work for and who's not. Do they have any uh, informal or formal social organizations to, uh, to keep each other versed in how, how they're all doing? You know, not not that I know of. Okay. You know, part of it's because of the isolation. Sure. Obviously, this state's got a lot of farms that are in very rural areas and with the difficulty of driving or the complications of driving there's not as many opportunities to meet Uh also people are working most of the time and so Mm -hmm. that that's also a, a problem i would say that the network rather than it extending as the grapevine in wisconsin it's more that it goes directly back to veracruz that makes sense yeah 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 so the, the, there's sort of a, a back and forth that happens, I would yep. say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes very good sense. How have, the, how have relations evolved between these two very desperate communities? I'm thinking of how I don't think I'm stating any great revelation to suggest that uh, rural Wisconsin is pretty ethnically homogeneous, including, I would suppose, the First Nations population, which isn't very large. But you've got these relationships between uh, between Mexicans uh, from a very specific area and then Americans from an equally specific culture and area. How have the relations evolved generally, or uh, can you see any patterns between the between these farmers and uh, and their uh, Mexican employees? Yeah, I think you know 
Again, like I said earlier, it's always a large variance, sure. um, you know, depending on the, the person, their politics, how they treat their workers, or how they envision um, sort of their, their relationships with their workers. So on, on the one hand, we have people that are running a dairy farm who very quickly realize, I have Mexican workers that have come, like you're saying, Dave, from a very specific culture, mm-hmm. and I don't know anything about that. Uh, and so as a dairy farmer, I want to learn a little bit so I can have better communication with mm-hmm. my workers, hopefully to run a better business. But also if I have better relations with my workers, it's just making for a more enjoyable working environment. Yeah. Um, and so you have people that will go this sort of extra mile to learn about the culture, to take classes, to learn yeah. you know, basic Spanish. There's examples of people who have created cross-cultural classes. Mm-hmm. So there's a very good, a very sort of productive organization in, in Western Wisconsin called Puentes, mm-hmm. which is uh, Spanish for bridges. They've, they've worked on a number of projects where they're trying to get dairy farmers from Wisconsin to Veracruz, Mexico oh, yeah. to meet and learn about the culture's that their workers are coming from. Yeah. Um, there's not a lot of these organizations out there or anything like that, um, but it has inspired people to become more aware of the okay. communication barriers that exist. And so what we have in Wisconsin is there are people who are hired as translators or consultants yep. that go out to the farms who work there on a daily basis or do training with the workers in Spanish Um, so that they can have sort of the specific technical knowledge and there isn't anything lost in the translation. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, there's also people that aren't doing these things. There's certainly instances where workers and their their dairy farm owners or bosses are really not talking at all. And so how does that function? Well, usually there's sort of a head worker who has a relationship with the, the boss or the owner, And they might not even really be able to communicate that well, but the boss sort of uses a point person to then be like the manager of the rest of the group so that they are removed by a degree from interacting with people. You know, that has multiple effects. I think what it does is it increases the fear that exists between the employees and the employer. We don't know what our employees are thinking. We don't understand necessarily how they feel about us. Um, We just get the sense that they don't really want to engage. And so a lot of those things that I was talking about were farm workers are less willing to come forward or are less willing to voice their opinions or are less willing to try to improve maybe the conditions. That is even less likely in these farms where the communication is sort of broken. It's very hard to know even with those farms uh, that making that transition initially how do we incorporate people into our business? It's almost as if dairy farmers had to learn human resources. <laughs> they had yeah. to learn how to manage people and do things that a larger corporate business might do naturally. Sure. And so those adjustments, those learning curves created a lot of inequalities for farm workers. Well, and in, in that vein, the farmers are shifting their, their, intergenerational operating model was based on patriarchal authority and and intrafamilial division of labor. And here you're getting them having to, uh, like you say, develop some sort of rudimentary HR culture. How do Veracruzanos talk 
about the states or uh, especially when they go back home because I imagine a lot of these people uh, I know they're sending remittance payments but I read about people using the time to build their own homes back in Veracruz and that how do they regard the states or can you get any sense of that from your uh, materials I get the sense that there's sort of a a paradox in emotion um, on the one hand, they see it as a very valuable opportunity for themselves and their families and their communities. Yeah. There's a lot of people who will tell me, you know, I know that I can go up north and I can really make a difference at home. Mm-hmm. I can really make a difference, not just for myself, but for my family, not just my immediate family, but, you know, my cousins, aunts, uncles. They understand that there's a need to go to the United States to get those opportunities that are simply unavailable to them in Mexico. And so, you know, you see people adapting to the the lifestyle, the culture of being in the U.S. Some people take to it very strongly, yeah. and some people are sort of uninterested. There's this sense that it's sort of almost a necessary thing for me to come to the United States. It's part of my culture that I am going to migrate north to bring money home but I don't really necessarily want to stay in the U.S. There's not a lot of my culture. There's not a lot yeah. of sense of belonging for me if as a dairy worker in Wisconsin. Part of that is because these communities are very isolated. People yeah. on farms living in housing that's actually on a farm. So, yes. you know, where do they go? They go to their house. They go to the farm. You know, and besides that, they maybe go to the grocery store and that's it. <laughs> yeah. And so what do they really know or how do they really interact with the, the broader culture in the upper Midwest? I would say probably they don't. It's always going to be different for those who have families in the U.S. Yes, than I for those that. who are single migrants. Not surprisingly, the majority of migrants that came first in the 1990s were men. Yes. Yeah. Later on, we start to see uh, more mixed status families, people getting married in the U.S., having children that are American-born citizens. I would say that in those mixed status families, that's where you see the most interaction, largely because kids go to school. And when they go to school, the parents then become more integrated into the community because they have to go for parent-teacher conferences or, you know, they have teachers that are interacting with them, other, you know, their yeah. other children's friends, parents, things like that. But in each of these situations, there's always a lot of mediation. Dairy workers that I interview largely do not speak English. And so their children become interlocutors, yeah. translators. Yeah. Quite typical of, fan, of, of most immigrants, yeah. Absolutely. And so this is you know, a situation that I see where the kids are very integrated into the culture and they largely want to stay. Sure, sure. Just because that's where they were born, that's where they grew up, that's what they know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so those families are maybe the ones that are the most connected and it will vary depending on the community, how the community sort of responds either in a welcoming way or sort of in a silent, distant way. Sure, sure. Well, okay. But a lot of people talk about, you know, I go to town to get gas, to get groceries. Sometimes I see people that I know because I've seen them at my child's school and they'll say hello. Um, but beyond sort of just the common greeting, there's very little interaction. Part of that, too, is uh, uh, they're visible, right, uh, in, in a way that uh, it, it seems to me thinking about the, the racial dynamics in this situation. There's for I think a lot of these are in Cruzanos. There's got to be a couple elements because uh, 
A, they're Mexican, and they're very strong American models of thought about Mexicans uh, lumped together. But secondly, a lot of these folks are from indigenous backgrounds, aren't they? How does that inflect their position? Uh, how, how do both considerations inflect their relationships with their employers or with their communities? But also, uh, how does that make them distinctive in Mexico? And how much is that framing their understanding of uh, the interactions they have? Initially, you know, when you talk to people, they don't say they're Mexican. Mm -hmm. They say they're from Astasinga or yeah. San Juan Tehuacan, which are the names of pueblos in the mountain region of Veracruz. Yeah. And so they much more identify with their local town or village hmm. than they would with the country of Mexico. And that's speaking to what you were saying in terms of the indigenous history there. And what, I, what I've found is that these communities are certainly isolated because they're high up in the mountains. And prior to the 21st century, they did not have paved roads. Yes. They did not have internet connections or anything like that. Uh, they did not have cars. Uh, usually a town, small village would share a telephone if they had one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so this is a way in which people from Veracruz are coming to Wisconsin or Minnesota or wherever, and they are sending money back that, that literally is sort of transforming their communities. Um, but it's also modernizing them in a lot of ways. Yeah. So, you know, now we have kids who have cell phones and iPads and, you know, all sorts of different things where 25, 40 years ago, none of that would have been even remotely possible. Sure. So there's the sense that we see the benefits of people that are migrating. It's yeah. making yeah. material changes in our lives and our communities. You know, I would say that of that first generation, maybe from the 80s or the 90s, that first migrates to the upper Midwest from uh -huh. Veracruz, a lot of those people grew up speaking Nahuatl. Um, okay. Or um, yep. But they learn Spanish as a way to make money. Sure. Okay. So it's nested. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, people tell me stories about, oh, well, first I went to Mexico City to work as, I don't know, a construction worker or as a factory worker. And so I had to learn basic Spanish to work in that environment. And then Spanish sort of became my primary language because I was working in that environment. Mm -hmm. And then when they come to the United States, you know, if they are somebody who does that sort of first jaunt to a, a Mexican city and then to the U.S., uh, largely they, they stick with that Spanish because that's the language that people in, in the U.S. know better yeah. still. Yeah. You know, there's there's sort of that, that language aspect where things are changing and the communities there are changing because kids that are being raised there now are not learning that indigenous language. They're learning uh, Spanish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So things have definitely changed there and... Um, you know, I would say for those mixed status families that I talked about before with children that are living and growing up as U.S. citizens in Wisconsin, almost everybody I talk to, you know, they say, yeah, my, my child speaks Spanish not that well. And they yeah. speak English very well. Um, yeah. And so that's that's really sort of a common thing. There is there is a sense that the indigenous history is slipping a little bit. Sure, sure. And, and that there's a need to sort of hang on to some of the traditional aspects of the community in order to maintain that history, uh, that culture. 
Yeah, yeah. Which, which again, it's it's bizarre how their experience, these this community's experience in in this part of the United States, echoes that of successive waves of immigrants from from Europe, especially the, the predominate here. But again, this uh, documentation regime throws this whole this whole warp into the into their status and relationship and identities. Uh, do you see any way out of that? You know, I think that there's there's a lot of people who have been developing, you know, potential programs for immigration reform. Mm-hmm. At this point, with the, the status of most being undocumented, you have to have faith or trust in your employer to have your back, to want to protect you, um, to value you as a human being. Sure. And if there is a way for our government to create avenues for year-round workers, that would vastly change the experience of dairy farms, partially because the other part of this story is dairy farm workers, unlike maybe more seasonal laborers, are able to stay there year round, but they also, in the case of Veracruzanos, they're not thinking long term. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is they are coming to the U.S. with the intention of leaving in three to four years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make your night. They're, they're really on that plan. And sure. it's it's less of the population that ends up staying, that ends up making a life in the U.S., I would say. Maybe it's close to 50-50, you know, depending on who you ask or who you talk to. But I would say that there are still a very, very significant portion of the population is trying to do a circular migration. Which makes it very distinctive from, say, the Mexican and Central American laborers in meat plants in Iowa or around Green Bay. And it appears more that they they want sedentary life in, in the new place and, and think of it as a place to live. Is that correct? Or? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, th- I think, you know, the the historian who um, who's sort of done a lot of research on this that I, that I usually look to is Ana Mignon who wrote mm-hmm. a book called Undocumented Lives. And in that story, you know, she presents this evidence of after the 1986 uh, Immigration Reform and Control Act, because of the increased militarization of the border, because of the increased danger of crossing the border, people are more likely to stay yeah. in the U.S. once they get here. Huh. And, you know, the original intention that lawmakers had for IRCA was that it would decrease the amount of border crossings, that it would hinder or, you know, somehow, you know, stop people. And yeah. what it actually did was it, it didn't stop anybody. It just compelled them to stay yeah. once they got across. And so, you know, certainly if you look at Mexican migration very broadly, that is the majority. Okay. Um, yeah. But when, yeah. when you zoom in on the dairy industry, you have this sort of different dynamic. If our government is able to to create an immigration reform system that would enable two to three year circular migrations, that yeah. would transform the dairy industry. Even contracts, yeah. So I think, you know, there's a lot of reasons and evidence for why this would work for the dairy industry. I think the fear is the dairy industry is not the majority. Yeah, yeah. Um, other industries like corn, like you were saying, meatpacking, pork beef, all of these uh, industries that rely on immigrant labor, they, they tend to have that storyline of come to the U.S., settle. And so I think that's the major complication that, that, that remains. Well, thank you. This has been really interesting. I'm glad you were 
able to take the time to talk, and uh, good luck with completing the dissertation, bringing it to fruition, and in all your endeavors ahead. Look forward to running into you in the department when we're running into people again. Yeah, well, I hope sooner rather than later. Thank you. Thank you very much, David. I appreciate it, and, uh, and I appreciate your time as well. My pleasure. Listeners, do you have an idea for an episode? Send your questions for Historian to outreach at history.wisc.edu. Today's episode of Ask a Historian was produced and edited by me, Emily Tran, with editorial consulting from Leonora Neville. Special thanks to Liz Houck. Major funding for Ask a Historian comes from the Department of History Board of Visitors at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Thanks especially to John Leibovitz, Peter Hamburger, and Rick Kelson. Thanks for listening, and take care.